Ernest Becker, in his, in his book, The Denial of Death, writes this. He writes, we want our lives to count for something, to make, in other words, an acceptable offering. But we're plagued by the fear that our offering is finally unacceptable. Not only do we frequently make a mess of our lives, but even when we're at our best, even when we press ourselves to the limit to give and serve and do the right thing, it still seems insufficient. We can never do enough, achieve enough, love enough, give enough, have enough, or be noticed enough. Someone's always standing in judgment over us. Parents, teachers, employers, strangers, our inner selves. They're putting us on trial, deeming our efforts to be unacceptable. And so day after day, we're condemned to trudge to life's altar with a new offering that is never satisfactory. End quote. It's the sort of person who's always struggled with the um, pressure to measure up. I can really relate to that quote. wonder about you. I think that the writer of Hebrews, the book that we're studying at the moment, would, would agree with, with Becker. But instead of uh, an offering by which to draw near to parents or, or teachers or employers or even our inner selves, he's talking about one required to draw near to a holy God. I think he'd say, we need a better offering than the one we have to offer. And we need a better mediator to make it on our behalf. So if you have your, your Bible with you, turn to 2 Hebrews chapter 7 uh, and chapter 8. And uh, this is where we're going to spend our time uh, today. So two chapters. It, it's a lot of content. But here's a quick nutshell. Here's the nutshell. There's two points. In verse 26 of chapter 7, the preacher tells us that in light of our human failings and weaknesses, um, to draw near to God, we need a priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. All things that we're not. And then the good news... He tells us in chapter 8, verse 1, the good news is that in Jesus we have such a high priest. And so he's telling us, he tells us there plainly that this is the point of everything he's saying. And he's saying that Jesus is the great high priest that we need. And so if from here on in I fail as a communicator... Hold on to that nutshell. This is the point. Jesus is the great high priest we need in order to draw near to God. Because it would have been a question for the original audience at the time that the people that he's preaching to. There would have been one objection that would have come up as, as a flashing lights. And they would have um, immediately said, well, hang on. 
th- th- this can't be so, because they would have known that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, and the law made it clear that priests had to be from the tribe of Levi. So how could Jesus be this great high priest? Now, if you've had ears in the last few weeks as we've been going through, uh, going through this book, you'll recognize that the preacher has already said three times that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And three times he's just kind of just dropped it in the sermon and then he's moved off and never told us about this Melchizedek guy. He's drifted off and uh, first of all, he went off on an excursion about how slow they were to mature and that like babies, they were still on milk and not on solid food. And then he gave them a warning about apostasy. He gave them a, a rebuke and then an encouragement about God's faithfulness and the certain hope that they have on this journey. And now, in chapter 7 and 8, finally, he comes back um, to this mysterious Melchizedek character. And he's going to teach them what he's referred to earlier as the solid food. And so it's here in our text that he's answering the question, well, how can Jesus be a legitimate high priest? And why is he greater than the ones they've had before? And to, to make his, uh, his case, he's going to turn again to, to Psalm 110. It's come up previously. It's, it's underpinned a lot of what he's said. And he's going to lay out his case based on an exposition of verse 4. To help us visualize this, I'm, I'm a visual person, so what if we put up, I've got a slide uh, there just that shows us that psalm. And just to break it into three things that are mentioned in Psalm 110, 4. See, the first one, that there's an oath by God. Secondly, you see, talks about an eternal priesthood. And then lastly, about this order of Melchizedek. And so what the preacher was going to do, continuing on from here, he's going to work his way through these three things, but in reverse order. So we can, we can move that from the screen, but that, that's how it's laying. Here's an, an exposition uh, of this psalm, making his case for Jesus uh, as the great high priest. So he starts off, he talks about this order of Melchizedek. Who and, and, and what about him? And so he's going to go back, and he goes back to Genesis 14, this encounter that the great patriarch Abraham, the one who first received the promises from God, he encounters this Melchizedek. And it's here he's going to say that, that well, Melchizedek uh, is greater than the uh, order of priests established under the law of Moses. He's going to say four reasons um, for this. The first one, he says, well, look, it's Melchizedek that blessed Abraham. And he says, well, look, it's, it's the greater blesses the lower. And see, clearly, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. He says, secondly, well, well Abraham actually gave tithes, 10% of this booty that they had just gathered um, from this previous battle. He, he gives the tithe to Melchizedek this great priest. And then he, he makes a case and he says, well, look, it's, 
Just look how great this Melchizedek is. Look at him. He's the, he's the priest of the Most High God. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of peace. And he's a priest forever with no beginning or end. He's like a divine figure. Now, time out on that one because there's a question that comes is reading away through this one and saying, well, I got questions about that. What does it mean? No beginning and no end, and he's a priest forever. And looking, it was a well-established um, rabbinic uh, practice at the time to interpretate to interpret based on silence. And so, if something wasn't in the Torah, then it wasn't in the world. And so he looks. He says, "Well, the other patriarchs they had genealogies, um, but Melchizedek doesn't." And he's saying, well, the, the deaths of the others are recorded, and yet Melchizedek isn't recorded. And so, therefore, he's without beginning and without end. And I know that's really deeply unsatisfying for us. I want more. But it wasn't a big deal for them at the time. That was well in accord with their practices. So that's all he writes. He's saying, look, he's without beginning, he's without end, he is, he is great. And so his big point on this is that way back in Genesis, Genesis 14, he's saying already the priestly order of Levi established under the law is already being foreshadowed as inferior to the priestly order of Melchizedek. And he's saying that this greater priestly order points us towards Jesus. So that's his, his argument and the way he's going about it there. Secondly, he moves on to that next point uh, in Psalm 110.4. And he says, well, Jesus is an eternal priest. And he, and he builds this argument and he says, well, the problem with the Levitical priesthood is that it couldn't attain perfection. It's true end. It couldn't bring about the full completion of the task for which it was for. Wonder if, by an analogy, with all the weaknesses of analogies, think of maybe um, cell phone networks. Uh, the old original analog network, um, the analog network allowed us uh, to speak to someone and to hear them, but if the goal was, was FaceTime, to speak to someone face-to-face, -face, then it couldn't achieve that desired end. You, you needed 4G. And saying, well, the analog pointed us in the right direction, but really we need 4G to complete or perfect this desired task, if that helps. <laughs> so he uses Psalm 110.4 as proof. And, he, and in verse 11, he looks and he says, well, if the Levitical priesthood could complete the task, well, why would the psalmist prophesy that one from the order of Melchizedek needed to arise. You get that logic? If this could do the task, then why would he possibly prophesy that this was needed? And so he therefore says, well, something better was needed. And then in verse 16, he makes the second point. We're talking about, about Jesus now as this, this better one that was to come. And in verse 16, he says, well, Jesus became a great high priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement, but by the power of an indestructible life. He says he's greater 
because his priesthood is forever. And we get it in 23 and 25. He notes under the law that there were many priests, one after another, because every single time a priest died, they needed to appoint another one. Then he would die, and they needed to appoint another one, so you've got all this line of priests. And so he's saying here, well, they, they, they couldn't continue in office, but Jesus, who's raised from the dead and seated on the throne, he ministers permanently. So Jesus is a priest forever, and consequently, he's able to save to the utmost. We might use another word, maybe completely, perfectly. And he always lives to intercede for us. Always there, day by day, year by year, forever, interceding for us, uninterrupted, unended, forever. Greater than the others. And this is where he makes that point, if you remember a nutshell from the start, he says, look, this is the sort of priest that we need. Someone holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted in the heavens. And he makes the point, again, by comparison, he's saying, well, the other priests, they're also sinners in their humanity, and, and they need to make daily sacrifices for themselves first, and then for the people. He said, well, Jesus doesn't have to, since he did it once and for all, when he offered himself up as a sacrifice. We'll cover that more in the next two weeks, lest you think I'm skipping over a pretty big thing there. And as a result of Jesus' eternal and better priesthood, he says, well, look, we've got a better hope. And there's a better hope by which we can draw near to God and be in relationship. Not just the high priest on our behalf drawing near to God, and not just once a year, but all of us in Christ drawing near to God. What a better hope that that is. And then as his last point, he says, well, Jesus is appointed by oath, not by law, and by a greater covenant. And the psalmist says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You want to know who's saying this? Thank God himself. This is his covenant. And, and his point is that the preacher is saying, well, this makes it um, a better covenant. He's saying, well, Jesus is a guarantor for this greater covenant. Think, think about, um, I'm not sure if any of you had to, have had to take on uh, debt. It's the language of commerce here. You can get a debt and you need a guarantor, maybe a parent or someone that's like, if things turn to custard, sorry, that's, I'm not sure if that translates, if things go badly, <laughs> British heritage, <laughs> if things go badly and, and, and don't work out in that situation, the bank wants to know, hey, things have to be met here. So yeah, poor parent comes in on board, backs you up and it gets paid. And he's saying, look, Jesus is the better guarantor one. He is the one that guarantees that the debt is paid. It's secure. What a, what a great guarantee. What a great covenant that that is. He goes on, he says, well, the law appoints men in their weakness. And yet the word of the oath, which came later than the law, he's saying appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. And we know through the earlier passages when we looked at it, it was through his obedience, even to death, 
perfect not in the sense of moral perfection, but perfect in its ability to complete the task, to fulfill what was required. And then lastly, just quickly, he says, look, even his place of ministry is far better than that of the Levitical priesthood. He's saying his ministry is in heaven at the seat of the Most High, the right hand of the Most High. He's in heaven. He's saying, well, the others, they serve and a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. It's an earthly ministry and attend to a tabernacle, a, a temple. And he, he goes back and talks under the law how it was even God when he was telling Moses how this was to be set up. He even said, look, you just serve a copy or a shadow of heavenly things. This is pattern that I've shown you. He said, well, if Jesus isn't in the pattern. He is the real thing in the heavenlies. We can draw near to God through that. And so having exposited this, this reason why Jesus is this great high priest, so why? He's saying, look, he's mediating these greater promises. You think the promises to, to Abraham were great? Look at the ones under the new covenant. He looks and says, look, if the old covenant had been faultless, there wouldn't have needed to be something new to look to, which clearly we've been told there would be. In Jeremiah. And so the old covenant, it was a conditional covenant. It was a, if you do, then you will. And there was a two-part, and yet humanity, we can't live up to the terms. We fall short. We're unfaithful to our part of the covenant. We can't follow the law. We recognize our falling short. And yet, so there's a better one that God will guarantee, and he will be faithful to his own word. Well, what is the better promises that come with that? Sort of read through, he finishes in chapter 8, and he quotes from Jeremiah 31, which was uh, our Old Testament reading today. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I'll write them on their hearts and I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least unto the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. There's a lot there, but there's three things as I've been praying and thinking. Why is this good news? We have this great high priest bringing these great promises. Well, here's three to think of. In Jesus, in his death, resurrection, and ascension, being guaranteed complete forgiveness of sins, not covering over them. So we desperately need that good news. A failure to realize 
that we're forgiven allows the old things to define us. We carry around a, a list of our failures in our minds and we carry the burden of our sin and shame with us. And we live under the harsh judgment of others and we can't move forward in life. And also, if we only accept partial forgiveness for ourselves, we only tend to offer partial forgiveness to others, heaping guilt and shame on them as well. The preacher's clear. He says that Jesus is a great high priest of of a different order. And his is a a complete forgiveness to the uttermost, perfectly, once and for all, forever. The covenant he guarantees is a covenant of divine mercy and grace. Jesus, his guarantor, has paid the debt we couldn't pay. The old contract, it's annulled. And through Jesus, our great high priest, the ceaseless condemnation of never measuring up, of never being worthy, it's wiped away in a supreme act of divine kindness and grace. It's the good news we need to hear. Our sins are forgiven completely. When have you experienced that forgiveness? Have you accepted that forgiveness? gone, it's paid in full, it's been given a divine act of grace and mercy. Through Jesus, God's been merciful to your shortcomings and mine. He's remembered our sins no more. So look to Him. Be anchored to Him in hope. You've received mercy, you've been forgiven. Secondly, one of these better promises This incredible relationship that we have as as God's children. In the 2014 movie, The Imitation Game, about Alan Turing, who was a key figure in breaking Enigma, which was the German code in World War II, there's an incredible scene at the end of the movie where Turing's been questioned by Detective Nock. And Turing asks him, he says, Am I a person? Am I a machine? Am I a war hero or am I a criminal? And the detective looks back and he says, I can't judge you. Jerry looks back and he says, then you're no good to me. And the way that the story's framed, uh, at least in the movie anyway, there's a, there's a double play on, on Turing's academic project, which he'd called the imitation game. And it's a question uh, he, he ponders as to whether a machine could tell the difference between a machine and a human being. And, and in the, um, artistically, the way the movie is shown, well, Turing's betrayed socially as very awkward and robotic, struggling to be a normal or acceptable person. So what's the verdict? What's the judgment? We ask the same question. Are we acceptable? What's the judgment? And the new covenant and Jesus, our great high priest, the judgment's in. 
It's been made known once and for all. And Jesus, it's a definitive yes. We can draw near to God with confidence, knowing Him and being known by Him. Drawing near, not in fearful dread, but in confidence as dearly beloved children. And drawing near, not once a year, but every day, every moment in our need. Are we acceptable? Yes, we are. Dearly beloved child. And lastly, when we look at these promises of this new covenant that Jesus brings. There's power of transformation in this. Under the old covenant, we become a people who be concerned with outward appearances. We know the law, so we give ourselves trying to meet expectations and worried about the externals. Will I be met? And is there um, a power to actually transfer the inner life, though? So this is what Jesus talks about so often. He says, you're worried about the, the outside of the cup. But what about the inside that's unclean? And yet the new covenant actually has the power to transform us from the inside out. As we are today isn't the way we're going to be. The law is no longer written for us on stone, but on our hearts and, and in our minds. God's presence is no longer in a tabernacle or a temple, but poured out into our hearts through His Spirit that brings new life. See, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power at work in us to produce the life of Christ in us. And it's not just a power to renew each of us individually either, but the whole creation the whole tragic human history of the human race, the, the sin, the shame, the guilt, broken promises, and the torn relationships, it's not the last word. It's yesterday's news. It's old. It's obsolete. And it's passing away. In Jesus, God's final word, the long, dark day, sorry, the long, dark night, is giving way to the brightness of God's new day of mercy. We have a great high priest bringing greater promises, forgiveness of sins, son and daughtership, and the power of transformation, a new hope. So friends, Jesus is the great high priest, the one who brings about better promises and better hope. Let's continue to look to him and to draw near to his throne of grace.